Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fallis. My guest today is Cassie Rosita Patterson. Dr. Cassie Rosita Patterson received her PhD from the Department of English with a graduate interdisciplinary specialization in folklore at The Ohio State University. Cassie served as the Associate Director of the Center for Folklore Studies and Director of the Folklore Archives from 2012 to 2021. Dr. Patterson is a second-generation Salvadoran-American who grew up in Southern California and moved to Ohio to attend graduate school at Ohio State in 2007. And she is also one of my dear friends. <laughs> Bienvenida a este episodio, Rosita. Gracias. Uh, Cassie, tell me about life in California. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was thinking about this on the drive here, and... I loved growing up in California. I felt like I loved, I grew up in a small cul-de-sac in Rancho Cucamonga, and that's about 40 minutes east of LA. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of suburban life growing up, and I was surrounded by people from other places. Um, my neighbors across the street are from England, and my neighbors further down the street at the end Um, their father is French, so they would always go home to France to be able to visit with him in the summers. I had friends that I could walk down to their house and go visit them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I had a, a good education and really diverse groups of friends that I could hang out with in California. And I loved going to the beach in the summer and just having these adventures that all felt really close by. And we lived... Um, really near the we're at the base of the San Gabriel Mountains. Mm -hmm. And so the mountains being north mm -hmm. <laughs> was a pretty big, important piece of my life, or at least right. a, part of the visual landscape. Um, so just I loved California because we were close to the mountains, close to the ocean. And a lot of my family members were there. My uncles and aunts were around and they're still there. Mm -hmm. And I love going back to visit now. I've fallen in love with Ohio since then, and I feel like I'm <laughs> staying in Ohio. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting to go back to California now because as an adult with some kind of different critical awareness and framing, I see so much of what I grew up around differently, mm -hmm. and I feel like I interpret it differently, and I'm not sure how different things are from when I was actually living there mm -hmm. to when I'm visiting now. But I, I'm becoming more and more interested in California history and understanding all of these dynamics that were around me and present. But and I'm sure that I absorb some of that. But I'm see I see it different when I go back. Right, right. Um, it reminded me of just uh, you know just all all of us when we grow up in a different place and then and then you go back and as an adult and you see it differently. And, and that happened to me too. I grew up in. In Mexico and going back, I don't know, just things felt different. And, and you have this sometimes romanticized, you know, uh, memories of growing up in a certain place or doing certain things, certain activities. And when you go back, um, it's just some, sometimes it's um, 
it's a new place all over again, you know, mm -hmm. that you think, oh, but I had memories of this and they, this just looks different. So I understand what you're saying. How, how often do you go back to Mexico? I don't go up? often. The last time I went to where the town where I grew up, um, I was, um, well, let me see. It was in my 30s, like early 30s. So, you know, a long time. Yeah. And, and my daughters were young and they were coming with me. And I don't know, it's just a very different feeling, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like some features or pieces can seem the same, but then it's a little bit of a disconnect when other things feel so different. And mm -hmm. I feel like tapping back into like a child's memory mm -hmm. and experience in relationship to this adult kind of experiencing mm -hmm. is... It's hard to wrap your head around. And even when I don't know if this happened to you when you visited Mexico or when you, mm -hmm. you know, visit your mom in Texas. Um, it's like it takes a couple days once I get there mm -hmm. to settle in and to experience that jarring effect. Mm -hmm. um, and then it takes a couple days when I come home to adjust to right. <laughs> being back here again. Right, right. Um, Cassie, you're a second generation Salvadoran American. Were you always aware of this reality growing up? I would say yes and no. Um, I would say the terminology, you know, second generation, Salvadoran American, that was not something that was like a label that I was thinking about or that my parents were thinking about. <clears throat> but I think it's a reality of experience that I had growing up. Um, you know, I can think back to um, mostly like my birthday parties or different kinds of celebrations that we would have at my home where it, I mean, my family would, you know, come together. So we have my dad's side of the family, which really comes from Arkansas. That's mm -hmm. where their roots are. Um, I know you have connections to yeah. Arkansas, too. <laughs> um, you know, so my Aunt Carol and my Uncle Walt were there. And they, they're my, my Aunt Carol is my father's older sister mm -hmm. um, so I had these very present folks from my dad's side of the family and then my mom has two older brothers um, and another brother that I have actually never met mm -hmm. <laughs> who lives mm -hmm. in Northern California but um, but her two brothers uh, Julio and Victor would always be around too so I had these two sides of the families and um, I knew that my mom and her family were from El Salvador. Mm -hmm. At least my my older uncle Julio was mm -hmm. born in El Salvador. My younger brother, uh, her younger brother Victor, was born in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to a Mexican father and her mother. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different. But um, I knew that that connection was there. I mostly knew it through cooking mm -hmm. and food. My mom makes a Salvadoran turkey every Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. which is very different right. from um, <laughs> from a, a, a traditional American mm -hmm. turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and my older uncle Julio and his wife Irma, they, they speak Spanish as their primary language. And, mm -hmm. and like me, only have a little, they only have a little bit of English and I only have a little bit of Spanish. So there was this inability to communicate mm. in, a, in a deep way with each other. Right. So... I knew that my mom was from El Salvador. I knew some of the story of her coming here, but not a lot. Mm. And um, at one point when I was early on in my graduate career, mm -hmm. I tried to interview her about that experience coming here. And it was pretty clear that that was a very traumatic experience mm -hmm. and that it was something that um, I think she didn't want to talk about very much and that 
it had to kind of be in a place that she felt safe with it being. So we stopped and and haven't really returned to that. And whenever she brings up things that are from her past, I just listen mm-hmm. because I think it's too difficult to delve into or right. maybe that it requires some delicacy that I haven't mastered yet. Mm-hmm. Um. So you mentioned that some of the traditions or the things that uh, you can identify as Salvadoran culture is food. Um, when did you become maybe more interested in digging deeper into um, traditions or history from El Salvador? Is it when you were in, um, you know, at the university or was it also part of that growing up sort of, you know, thinking through that or asking questions? Something mm-hmm. like that? That's a great question. I think I became more interested in um, my mom's Salvadoran roots and even my dad's family history when I became more of a folklorist here at Ohio Mm -hmm, State mm -hmm. and going through our grad program because I think before it was something I could take for granted. It was something that was present. It was part of routine. Mm -hmm. You know, every Thanksgiving we have this turkey. Um, You know, mom makes this really delicious um, corn and tomato rice. Mm -hmm. And there were things that felt a little bit more just present. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't thinking about them necessarily in an intentional kind of observational way. Mm -hmm. And there was something about learning about other people's cultures and other people's relationship to their cultures that changed how I wanted to relate to my own. Um, And so I started asking mom, especially once I lived in Ohio for a couple years, I said, I I really want to have the ability to make that Salvadoran turkey. (laughs) Um, So there were two years in a row where when I went back, she made it and I took notes. And it was obviously very difficult because she does it all by taste. She does it all, you know, um, all the ingredients are in relation to each other in the present as she's making it. (laughs) And she's going on taste as she goes. And I say, okay, how many tablespoons of this are in it? How many teaspoons? And she says, well, I love that. Sorry to interrupt you, but I love that description. You said that everything is in the presence, you know, like it's almost like the ingredients know how much they need to, you know, be (laughs) at that moment. So I really like that description. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the the onion may be a different size. The bell pepper might be a different size. The, you know, the sizes of the chilies are Mm -hmm. all going to be different. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's. That's folklore. That's tradition mm-hmm. right there. And mm-hmm. um, that's also a, a master cook mm-hmm. who knows how to relate the ingredients to each other mm-hmm. and uh, to proportion them to get the right flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of tasting to help me figure <laughs> out how to do that because I'm, I'm very kind of driven by the ingredient list and the, the proportions when I make a recipe. Mm-hmm. I am not good at improvising at cooking. <laughs> it typically turns out poorly. Uh, my poor partner knows about that. But um, so I've gotten it to where I know what it should taste like. Mm. My mom likes her sauce to be pretty heavy on uh, peanuts, Mm -hmm. the peanut flavor. She likes Mm -hmm. the thickness of Mm -hmm. the peanuts. So um, I think I've gotten to do it okay. Yes, I tasted it. So it's good. (laughs) Good, thank you. I'm not sure if I'll be able to like carry the torch here. Mm -hmm. Uh, My uncle might have to do that with his wife, Um, Uncle Vic. I hope you'll do it. Um, But yeah, so I feel like I've been able to intentionally 
engaged that recipe. That one seems to be the one that sticks out as something that is particularly, you know, indicative of my mom and her grandmother and the passing on of this food tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of other little things that seem more subtle in my mind. I know I was um, I was baptized when I was younger. Mm-hmm. We were brought up Catholic. Um, and there are certainly cultural elements that I'm sure are more present in my life than I realize. Um, my mom has tended to be, um, uh, I would say, a very active mother, mm-hmm. a very engaged mother, and one who's been... Um, always trying to make me aware of the things I need to do to be able to get ahead in life Mm -hmm. and to be able to um, not miss opportunities. She's very aware of that. And I don't know if that comes from her background um, Mm -hmm. or from just her personality or Mm -hmm. circumstances, but um, she's always been a very organized woman, a driven woman, a hard worker and um, she doesn't take no for an answer. She's she's going to go and get what she needs to do. You know, mm-hmm. she, she my mom went to college all when I was growing up, when I was in elementary school and high school. She was getting her degree mm-hmm. and raising a family and cooking for us and cleaning and, you know, my parents taking care of us. And they really did a lot to make it possible for me to be where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And they always stressed that education was incredibly important on that journey, that college was something I had to do. It was, it it didn't even seem like, I mean, it was a choice that I made, but it seemed like this was the road Mm -hmm. and I was, I was, you know, going to hop on it (laughs) and I was going to go. So, yeah, that's great. Um, Cassie, I know uh, you mentioned right, your mom. Your mom is uh, Salvadoran. She, she came to the U.S. at a young age, and your dad is from Arkansas. He's he's white. Um, so first, I'm curious, how did they meet? Uh, and then uh, tell me also, um, how did having parents from two different cultures impact your ability, your own ability to connect with your Latinx culture? Mm-hmm. So I have a really beautiful recording of this that uh, I have to get digitized. But Mm -hmm. I did record my parents' meeting story. And I love meeting stories. Mm -hmm. My mom was in a car accident. She had a beautiful red Mustang. And she had, I think, pretty recently gotten it and then Mm. got into an accident. I don't remember the details of the accident. But so she went to the hospital to get a CAT scan. And that was where my dad worked. And um, I think they had kind of seen each other and my mom noticed my dad's blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And so when she was in the waiting room or maybe in the ops room, um, she told the other nurse, oh, that that guy out there has got these great blue eyes. (laughs) (laughs) And so that lady told my dad and um, I guess they met and then they went to dinner their first date was at a italian like a spaghetti mm-hmm. restaurant and um it was called the itchy foot <laughs> <laughs> what a name <laughs> yeah it was this little hole in the wall they went to but yeah so that started the my grandmother was very happy to have um such a good man for her mm. her daughter because she had been dating some scoundrels before that (laughs) and he brought her um fresh produce Mm -hmm. um when he came over for dinner and he loved eating rosa's food 
Mm. So they were a match made in heaven. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and to the second part of your question, I feel like uh, growing up in a house that had these two cultures together, um, it was such uh, it's it's a circumstance that I'm very grateful for. Um, even though it has had some challenges, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's it can be a little difficult having this kind of blended experience where you feel like you're connected to different identities, and um, I feel like I had more access to and more um, relationships with people in the white communities that were around me. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. I primarily hung out with white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, and my mom speaks Spanish, but my brother and I don't, mm-hmm. and my dad doesn't. So I feel like we were more connected to um, the white side of our family, and I could communicate with everybody on mm-hmm. that side of the family. Mm-hmm. I couldn't always communicate with my uncle Julio and his wife, Irma. Um, and so I think it means that I, I think also my mom had a, a real challenge becoming a part of the community that she's in now. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a tough time. She only spoke Spanish when she came to the United States, and it wasn't until her ESL teacher pulled her aside because she was failing all her classes because mm-hmm. she couldn't understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so her ESL teacher um, took her aside and um, started talking to her and tutoring her and helping her out. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, a lot of the challenges that came from my mom coming here maybe encouraged her to be more connected, like in an assimilated way, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there weren't a lot of Spanish-speaking people around us in our immediate neighborhood, at least. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I was aware of a connection to... Latinx life and history, but not in a very intentional way, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was present, but not studied or engaged. Um, as directly, mm-hmm. maybe. A lot of stuff feels a little more passive mm-hmm. in that, when I think back about that. It was about, you know, who shows up, what is the conversation, you know, as opposed to like, let's go to this event. This is about our history. We need to connect. Um, It was more about what's local and free in our community and what's kind of immediately available, um, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure included a lot of events and activities that would have been connected to Latinx culture. But Mm -hmm. we didn't really do that. Right. And um, I love this question because I'm not entirely sure why. Mm-hmm. And it would be neat to go back and ask my folks about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cassie, when we met seven years ago, y- you were hesitant about identifying as Latina. I remember that. I remember that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember, you know, when you told me a little bit about your story, I'm like, oh, you're Latina. And and I felt, you know, your hesitancy. Tell me why. Yeah, I mean, it might have a lot to do with, like, my previous answer in that, I haven't always felt authorized or, yeah, maybe authorized to claim Mm -hmm. the identity for myself. I'm working on that right now. 
and especially with all of um, with a lot more information about the variety of lives that Latinos lead and you know the different skin colors we come mm-hmm. in and the different relationships to language we have mm-hmm. different histories and trajectories and um, relationships it feels more open now and I feel like before I felt very ambivalent about it because I didn't want to claim something that wasn't mine to claim. I didn't want to disrespect anybody whose experience was different than mine that maybe had more claim to the title and to the identity than I do. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, I wanted to be a contributor right. to statistics about Latinos finishing college and mm-hmm. getting a PhD or... Um, I wanted to to contribute, but I didn't know how, and I, I think I still kind of don't. I feel like I'm still exploring that for myself mm-hmm. and finding out, okay, there are all these messages out there about how to be and, and what it means to be Latino. Mm-hmm. And I need to figure out what it is for me first mm-hmm. so that I can enter into that space in a way that I can feel confident about and have real conversations about. Um, And I guess that's been a a 37-year journey that is (laughs) really launching now. But I feel like now I might have a little more time in my world and in Mm -hmm. my my immediate space to think about that more intentionally. Was it um, not growing up bilingual or the language a main factor, you feel? I feel like it it is a big factor. Um, I know that that is a very sensitive topic mm-hmm. um, for people and that you don't have to speak Spanish or speak any particular language to be Latina. Mm-hmm. But um, it it was a challenge in terms of connecting with my own family, like right. on the most intimate level, being mm-hmm. able to ask my aunt and uncle, how are you really doing? You know, n- not just like it, it, it stunts the kind of conversations I can have with them. It does, yeah. And like even, you know, your mom is here. I would mm-hmm. love to be able to converse with your mom more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it feels there's a little bit of shame attached to not being able to communicate. And it does feel like it detracts from my sense of connection. Mm-hmm. It, it it allows me to connect with some people and not others mm-hmm. at certain levels without um, an intermediary who can assist me. Right. Um, and... But it's something that is in my control as a person now. Mm-hmm. Some people are able to have access to a second language of their home and some aren't. And in our case, there were a lot of other things going on. You know, my mom going to college and it was something that would have had to have been taken up very intentionally. And we did try, mm-hmm. but it was like going to school at home. Right. So I can understand how that didn't really take um, and so, yeah, I guess as an adult, that's my choice now. It's my choice whether I decide to go and learn Spanish or mm-hmm. if I work around it um, and to figure out how that factors into my relationship to my discovery of my own connection to this identity. Cassie, mm-hmm. um, I know that you're beginning a new career, a new journey in your professional and personal life. Um, and I know, and, and I'm happy to be part of this journey with you. Um, tell me about uh, 
this new initiative as executive director in Journey, right, as executive director of the Southern Ohio Folklife. Yeah, thank you, Elena. Um, <clears throat> well, so I, I moved to Southern Ohio in July of 2020 um, as I was kind of wrapping up my time here at OSU. Mm-hmm. And my vision for this has been that I feel like I have learned a lot at Ohio State about creating community-engaged projects. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really wanted to do was, one, move to Southern Ohio to be with my partner um, and to live a more frugal and independent life. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I really wanted to do work, ethnographic research work, you know, collaborative work that was going to have an impact in the local community that I live in. Mm -hmm. And now that's Southern Ohio. Um, and so we are engaged in community-based participatory action research, which means that when we develop projects, we're developing them with community members. Mm-hmm. They are part of the conceptualiz- conceptualization and brainstorming process. We do research together, and the work that we do results in some kind of output that is actually relevant to people, that it mostly impacts and hopefully changes policy or changes practices Mm -hmm. around the work that has been done. Um, It addresses real-life issues Mm -hmm. and concerns and desires in the local community. Um, And, of course, in doing that work, I thought, I have got to have Elena at the (laughs) helm. So for those of you listening... um, Elena, uh, Profe, Elena Fallis is the chair of the Board of Trustees for Southern Ohio Folklife. And the first project that we have funded is a collaboration with me and Elena. And we will be working to prepare a, we have a planning grant from Mm -hmm. Ohio Humanities Mm -hmm. to recruit two community partners from the Latino community in Southern Ohio to conceptualize a larger grant proposal to Ohio Humanities Mm -hmm. that will, again, just address real issues and questions that people have in the area. And that means that we don't know what the grant will be. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the issue will be yet, but we are going to discover that together with Mm -hmm. our community partners. I'm excited for that project for sure. (laughs) Um, Especially in our region, right? Uh, We uh, typically think of um, Ohio's Latino population centered around the bigger cities like Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. And that's true. There is a greater number there, but there is a growing number of people in maybe more rural uh, communities or just smaller cities um, in, in building, you know, and in, in establishing roots there mm-hmm. um, and, and, and in all areas of life, you know, um, businesses, the arts, um, community, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations, um, everything. Um, and so we want to highlight that, that those, um, you know, people in those communities for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, um, the businesses, the, the Latino owned businesses in Portsmouth, for instance, they are regular contributors to, I mean, so many different um, events and activities that happen in the city. Mm-hmm. They're constantly present and um, providing food, mm-hmm. providing assistance, you know, co-sponsorships, very active. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to learn more about their stories with you. Right. Uh, Rosita, thank you so much for this conversation. 
Thank you for having me, and thank you. I'm so glad that your mom could be here, too. Yes. A todos, gracias por escucharnos, y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.